Eucharist recorded on Sunday the 20th of February 2011 in the Church of St Mary Aldermary in the City of London, Aaron Kennedy explores the theme of Eucharistic living. Okay, so I've entitled the homily Eucharistic Living. Hopefully there'll be something of a picture of what that looks like at the end. Um, A warning before I begin. It's a difficult topic. I won't be able to explain myself perfectly well, and you may have questions. You might be upset or confused, perhaps, and that's okay. Um, Please stay behind and have a chat with with one of us or myself. Um, I want to talk simply about Jesus and about the life that I've found in God through him. And I've chosen the Eucharist as my focus because I think that reflecting on it will help us to to learn to live on the Christian spiritual path. So... The Eucharist is a kind of meal, and as this metaphor rightly implies, celebrating the Eucharist, we come to receive some energy from this meal. But obviously, with proportions of of food being so small, etc., we're not talking about bulking up on carbs or getting a sugar rush or even a protein fix. It's um, spiritual energy we're talking about. The Eucharist is spiritual food for spiritual life. But what kind of spiritual life is the Eucharist designed to sustain? Who's the sort of person that needs the sustenance offered by this meal? That's what I want to talk about. Um, So I'm going to reflect on the two passages which I read for coming to this service. The Gospel and uh, Psalm 119. Both passages ask very difficult things of us. In the Psalm... We are asked to follow God's decrees, difficult enough in itself. We're asked to keep them all the way to the end. We're asked to obey the law with all our heart. We're asked to turn away our hearts from ourselves and to God's statutes. In the gospel passage, which is part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, we're asked, we're told to turn the other cheek, to give away the shirt off our back, to go the extra mile, to lend to the borrower regardless and to love our enemies, most difficult of all, perhaps. And like so many of of the hearers of this passage down through the centuries, like me, you're possibly sitting in your seat thinking, how is it possible to live a life like this? My own experience is that my attention wavers at the slightest nudge, so keeping God's decrees right to the end is just a non-starter. I'll last a few minutes until the monkey in my brain bounces off somewhere more interesting. Uh, My love for God is anything but all-consuming, as the, command with, as the command to obey with all my heart seems to require. In fact, I'm as seduced by the spoils and habits of consumer culture as anyone else. Any capacity I have to turn my heart away from selfish gain to God's statutes, which is from the psalm, is, when tested under even the mildest conditions, seem to be very limited. Much of the time I live, I live as if God had very little to do with my life. Um, reflecting on the gospel passage, I am and have long been known for a very fiery indignation in the face of injustice. I'm more likely to punch you on the nose or burst into tears rather than turn the other cheek. 
Um, anyone close to me will remember how angry I was when my bank retracted my overdraft, which was, by the way, their own money, which they were lending to me without my consultation. So giving up the shirt off my own back, which is something I possess and is my own, is really not something I've considered. As for loving my enemies, I have been actually made aware recently that I have been harboring some resentments for years, years and years. I um, hadn't really considered those people enemies, but I think this is what the Bible's talking about. Um, and in the time that's passed, I can assure you I have not been loving them. I have been resenting them. Um, so, it's a pretty bleak picture then, is it not, if we are gathered here as a group of would-be followers of Jesus, and the person who's talking from the front is as distracted, double-minded, self-centered, violent, possessive, and resentful as I am. Which is a pretty fair estimation. Um, and I'm not looking for sympathy. Uh, however, you, you may well be aware for yourself that whether you're comparing yourself against Bible passages like this or just against your marriage vows or your responsibilities as a parent or an ideal of faithfulness you have to your partner or any idea of what it means to be a peaceful, contented, contributing member of the community, uh, you might be aware that you don't always stack up that well. We don't. That's the human condition. Um, looking further afield, we look around us and we can see that we've um, caused climate to change in such a way that the future of the earth seems to be in question. We've colluded um, with the self-interested wars of our nation. We've disengaged from the pain and injustices of the world. The world is a difficult and broken place and we've all played our part in that. The Bible's word for this is sin. It's a terribly loaded and some would say useless phrase in today's world. Uh, but I think we need to recover a fuller understanding of it and try and get it back into some sensible usage. First of all, it's not just referring to the fact that we do bad things, but to something to do with how limited or how broken we are in our nature, something that makes it impossible for us to live up to the gospel passage that we read. This is sin as a state of being, something we are, not just the secondary effects that we normally call sinful behavior. Those are the things we do. So this is a question of being. Who are we? And I'm sorry to be gloomy, but my feeling is that until we're candid about this state of affairs, we can't really begin to create a better world or to be more contented, less divided people, at least as I read Jesus. But yes, there is the possibility this is not the end of the story. In fact, for Jesus, this is the beginning of the story. This is where the gospel comes in and offers us a new beginning, a hope and a future. Uh, something to say to the world's ills and all of our own personal problems as well. But yes, the life that is sustained by this meal that we've come to receive tonight, this meal of the Eucharist, is the life, is the spiritual life of someone who's learned to see themselves as a sinner. For those of us who are willing to at least consider learning to see ourselves as sinners, what does the Eucharist have to say um, about what we need to do to begin living the way Jesus and the psalm that I didn't read you seem to expect? Well, the Eucharist is a mystery and I'm not going to try and define it, but I do want to try and help us reflect on how it can sustain us in a pilgrimage with Jesus. When he originally celebrated it, it was called the Last Supper. He seemed to know that both his death, 
both that his death was Im imminent and that somehow he would go on living after his death. It's very strange. Earlier before that, he says that if anyone wanted to learn to live as he had done, they must learn to take up their own cross, deny themselves, and follow him. Presumably, where he went, which was onto the cross, whether or not you see that spiritually or physically. Jesus' understanding of salvation required that his would-be followers would be ready and willing to try out a different life, that they were tired out living for themselves or based on their own wisdom with their own resources. They'd given it a really good shot and that they'd just, they'd just got worn out doing it. And that they would be prepared to enter into a kind of death, the death of one life to get another life. A life that's bigger and deeper and less passing, less temporal than their own, which he called eternal life. And I don't think it just starts when we die. I think it starts today, if we want. So, if you want to save your life and hold on to all that you think defines you, as far as I read Jesus, you're going to lose it. If, you've tr if you're tired out living in whatever way you've been living and have begun to see that there's something wrong, something you can't fix, and you're willing to lose this life, then Jesus says, there's hope. And that's what people call salvation, which is another difficult word. But So, this is the kind of life Jesus hoped his friends would learn to live as he sat in that upper room at the Last Supper. He knew they wouldn't find following him easy, so he told them to regularly reflect on his life and death and to find sustenance for the journey by prayerfully recalling his own story. I want simply to say that the meal we've come to eat together tonight is food for souls that are willing to lose their lives in order to gain a new life. Now, even if we do see ourselves as sinners, and not all of us will be in that position, and that's okay. We don't just suddenly start to be able to turn the other cheek, give away the shirt off our back, and love our enemies. Our hearts are not immediately undivided in their love for God, and we do not by any means suddenly turn away from self and uh, direct our desires toward God's law. It's just not like that. So, three suggestions three things to be aware of as we begin to reflect on the Eucharist and the life that God is offering. Firstly, it's painful. And I say this so that we can begin to see where God is working in our lives. I think it's in the cracks, in the anxieties and the fears and failures. And instead of running from these, may I suggest we begin to let our minds open up to the possibility of seeing them as something we can consent to in order to find God's life holding us up, supporting us. So look out for the pain. Um, secondly, it's a lifelong journey. It's not going to happen tonight. It's not going to happen in a moment. It's a spiritual path. And we're living into a new reality. One that we need to train ourselves for on a regular basis. It happens slowly and gradually and we never really arrive. We don't get to know what happens after we die. But we, we do hope. And thirdly, it takes practice. By which I mean, we need to keep coming back every day to the stories of how Jesus lived his life. To the stories that illustrate the kind of person he was. Um, and this most central of stories, this ritual we're here for tonight, the Eucharist. And learn to be fed by the food offered here. And learn to live according to the pattern that he seems to be showing us that after death comes resurrection 
Great is the mystery of faith. After letting go, we can receive the gift we've always longed for. Underneath the pain comes a deep joy. After surrender comes liberation. So as we come to celebrate the Eucharist tonight and reflect on what sort of life sustained Jesus through poverty, rejection, having no status in society, consider how he managed to love outcasts and poor, the diseased and just downright unpleasant. What sort of life sustained him in loving his enemies and enabled him, enabling him to forgive those that crucified him? Consider Jesus' death and resurrection, which the very existence of this building and this group of people and the history of the church testify to, despite how ambiguous that history is. And consider this question. What is the life God is calling us to lose? And what is the life God is calling us to find? Thanks for listening to the Moot Community Podcast. If you'd like more information on who we are and what we do, please visit www.moot.uk.net.